Hello, this is the Nature of Nantucket podcast, and I'm Rich Blundell, the visiting scientist at the Mariah Mitchell Association. This week, I sit down with the historian, linguist, and author, Dr. Francis Cartonin. Dr. Cartonin is arguably Nantucket's premier historian. She has written over 11 books specifically on Nantucket's fascinating people, places, and its issues over time. She has also researched and published widely on the languages of Finland and Mesoamerica. Frances was extremely generous with her time for this interview, so our conversation spanned far and wide. In this episode, she shares some of her early memories of Nantucket, some of the remarkable women who helped shape her career in linguistics, and her thoughts on the impact of the Mariah Mitchell Association. You can access Frances Cartonin's website, which includes a bibliography of her major works, through the link in the show description. And now I bring you Dr. Frances Cartonin. Welcome, Frances. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background and your history with Nantucket? Yeah, well, I have a, a very deep history with Nantucket because I'm a 12th generation Nantucketer. And um, people who are descended from the original settlers actually have a label. We're, quote, descended Nantucketers. And uh, sometimes it seems that we're rather rare. Although my sister-in-law used to walk around saying sotto voce, we're still here. Interesting. Which sort of connects with the Anne Makepeace film about Wampanoags called We Still Live Here. Uh, and that film has been shown on Nantucket quite a bit. And, and I think, frankly, we we identify with it because how many generations does it take to be indigenous, really? I'm a 12th generation Nantucketer. One of my nieces has grandchildren. That makes them the 15th generation on the island. My earliest memories really are of the post-war period, the late 1940s, early 1950s, when we were very engaged in helping with reconstruction in Finland. And of our family, one of my uncles, one of my aunts, two of my cousins, and the daughter of one of my cousins, as well as myself, have spent time in Finland. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, there's the Nantucket heritage, which after all is the one we live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. But there's also the, the Finnish side of it. And because I had these two different wellsprings, um, I, I felt for a very long time that when I finished my academic career, the next thing would be to write a book about all the people who have come to Nantucket who aren't descended from the English settlers, who have added immeasurably to Nantucket's economy and its culture. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different sources. So I wrote that book, The Other Islanders, the subtitle of which is called People Who Pulled Nantucket's Oars. And it, it actually begins with the Wampanoags who were here, then Africans who were brought here, enslaved, and eventually more who came here because it became a Quaker sanctuary from the Fugitive Slave Acts. Wow. 
And then two different streams of people of Portuguese heritage, people who came from the Azores and people who came from the Cape Verde Islands, and then a lot of other people as well. But these were major contributors to Nantucket's economy and Nantucket's culture. So it was already in the 1970s when I was really just getting started with my own academic career that I began collecting information for the other islanders. I already had the title. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be what I did when I retired, and, and it was. Mm -hmm. So the other islanders refers to people of non-English or non-Indigenous descent? No, the other islanders are the people who aren't the descended Nantucketers, the people descended from the first English settlers. Who aren't? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, but unfortunately, some people think it's a book about the people on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, okay, cool. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's another book. That's another book. <laughs> yeah, one I've been thinking about. I bet. Um, but I am very much a product of the Mariah Mitchell Association. It was through the mentorship of three women at the Mariah Mitchell Association that I had an academic career. Um, there was Margaret Harwood, who was the previous director of the Mariah Mitchell Observatory. Dard Hofflight, who followed Margaret Harwood as director, and then Eileen McGrath, who was really homegrown, a biologist who became the head of the Natural Science Department. And Margaret, Dard, and Eileen were all Radcliffe women. Um, but I was here, and um, these three Radcliffe women determined that they were going to give me a shot at going to Radcliffe. They couldn't, they couldn't guarantee admission, but they're going to give me an opportunity. And they saw to it, I had an interview when I was still a junior at Nantucket High School. And I, I, I was uh, admitted. Mm -hmm. Now, during the time I was in high school, um, the mentoring I received at Maya Mitchell Association was in astronomy. And um, in the time of Margaret Harwood, and she was director for a long time, it was whole, the whole point was glass plate positives and negatives that you superimposed, and then where there was a difference, you could identify mm -hmm. um, variable stars. And to tell you the truth, I never fully appreciated it or even understood it until the book was published maybe 10 years ago called The Glass Universe. Mm -hmm about the, the women who were doing this at Harvard College Observatory, but also Margaret. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then came Dart with some different um, interests. But nonetheless, I, I was mentored in studying variable stars. I think that the fact of the matter is, what you were trying to understand <laughs> with the variable stars was something that a different generation was dealing with. And again, a book more recently published about Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, What Stars Are Made Of. Hmm. So when I went to Radcliffe, Cecilia 
and uh, her husband, Sergei, were still there, but they were approaching retirement. And the fact of the matter is, I never had much contact with them. What this biography of Cecilia Payne was just enormously enlightening and pretty inspiring. But once I got to Radcliffe, it became clear that astronomy wasn't where I was going to go. And it was a little painful because, you know, the feeling that you might disappoint your mentors. Well, how did it become clear? Well, if you're going to become an astronomer, you must have some pretty good ideas of questions that you have and how you want to answer them. Mm -hmm. I think in the course of a year or a year and a half, although I was in a freshman seminar with Donald Menzel, I realized that I didn't really have those questions or an idea of how to go about answering them. And you know, you really have to. Mm. Um, one of my daughters um, is a, a physician, but she also is a biochemist, and she said, if you aren't driven by biochemistry, you can't do it. Right. It's too hard. I get it. Um, but she was, and she did. But I, I didn't have that drive about astronomy, but I did have a drive not to disappoint my mentors. Sure. Um, so I think after two years, um, I thought, you know, and, and I had some probably not terribly useful counseling from deans at Radcliffe, mm. but, but I realized that what I had always been interested in from early childhood was not just languages mm. or the literature of languages, but what it is we know about them. Uh, what is it we bring to them mm -hmm. that we aren't taught, mm -hmm. we bring it to language. Mm -hmm. Well, most academic departments were language and lit departments. And I, I took full four years of German at Harvard, but I wasn't all that interested in German lit. Can I ask you a question? Do were, were there other, uh, when you were having your mentorship, mm -hmm. the period when you were being mentored at the Mind Mitchell Association, were there other options? There was one. What's that? Eileen felt that I was already so fluent at writing mm. in high school, and not just fluent, but, you know, clear, mm -hmm. that she thought I might have a great future in science writing. And Frankly, I admire the people who write for Science News immensely. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous service, and they are so good at it. But just as I didn't want to simply have a career in teaching, neither did I want a career in science writing, because I really didn't want to spend my career simply moving received information from one source to another. I wanted to be part of creating the information. Interesting. So it was all right to teach. It was all right to write well, but I really wanted to create new information. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm struck by several things here, if, mm -hmm. if I may. Mm -hmm. First of all, 
obviously or clearly you have not disappointed you would have not have disappointed your mentors given your accomplishments since then so i think that's i think you've cleared the that's we've cleared that hurdle so i can already i can still see that you're still a little bit uh you know uh, uh have a little bit you still feel that sense of commitment to them and that shows i felt enormous commitment to them and i think in the end um i'm not sure about Dorrit, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know they, they saw that i was doing something worthwhile which wasn't something they didn't do but it was worthwhile another thing that i'm sure you're aware of that there is this uh let's say an anecdote that one of Mariah Mitchell's students toward the end of her career at Vassar, that she had confided in the student that um, she had, she wished she had written a great poem in, instead of discovering a great comet. Did you know that? No. Well, it just sounds like a, you know, so. I, I've never heard that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I haven't been able to find a primary source mm -hmm. on that, but it's in several secondary sources. So. I guess what I'm saying there is that you haven't let Mariah Mitchell down either. Oh, I no, think I'm, she would appreciate your trajectory through there. You know, there's this huge biography of her, yeah. uh, Margaret Moore, book is, which is not a fast read, <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's a wonderful source. Sometimes when I simply want to know something that happened during the time that Mariah lived on Nantucket, and I can't find it any other way, I go to... And I, I find a reference yeah. that takes me where I want to go. So it's a great reference There's book. another, uh, what's the other one of her letters? There's a sort yes, of yeah. of her letters. Yeah, I don't have it out here, but yeah. I have it in the house. I think that's where I saw it. But there is another book about Mariah Mitchell, which people at the Mariah Mitchell Association don't like because it contains some irritating errors, but that's a book called Mariah Mitchell and the Sexing of Science. Mm. And really, if the author had wanted to do herself a favor, she should have brought her manuscript to Jason or some other people mm. here to have them read it and critique it. Mm -hmm. Because the errors that she makes are irritating, but her argument is interesting. And that is that Mariah Mitchell had an academic career because she was right on the cusp of when science got professionalized. Hmm. And that of the many young women that Mariah taught, I think only one of them actually had a paid career in astronomy. So, so what was it before that then? I mean, Well, because it was a period up through at least the middle of the 19th century of gentlemen naturalists, okay. uh, people who were amateur astronomers, and sometimes they would make wonderful discoveries and get mm -hmm. their names put on things like Mariah and her comet. But it was professionalized in the late 19th century and in a way that shot women out interesting um i mean, I mean that's an interesting social context mm -hmm. for its inception and its legacy since mm -hmm. that and here's what i have to say about my three dear mentors margaret dorrit and eileen were unmarried women and they had all made a decision that in order to have a life in science, they had to skip a spouse and family. They could have 
wonderful nieces and nephews. They could be mentors to other people, but they had to be single women. And that if you married, and God forbid you had children, you could write your science career goodbye. And then Cecilia Payne came along and she married Sergei Gapashkin and they had kids and they brought the kids to the Harvard College Observatory. Okay. People didn't quite know what to make of them because actually up to that time, Harvard College Observatory had a whole stable of single women doing variable star work. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden something's happening. Um, a family, kids, wow, mm -hmm. can it be done? Well, it was done. Mm -hmm. But when I was in high school, I had the sense that my three mentors felt if she goes boy crazy, or if she gets married and has kids, this is all for naught. Mm. And I honestly very much wanted a family. And in fact, I married and I have two daughters, two stepchildren, and I don't know what my life would have been without them. Mm. But it was, I think it was a change. Um, a change that was happening in the 60s and it had a good to do with women's rights. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a lot to do with birth control, choosing when and if one had children. Uh, but I had a colleague later at MIT where I did my postdoc and um, she said that when she came to MIT, somebody said to her, no children. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's hard to conceive of imposing that on yourself. Would, would, would a man yeah. going to MIT be told, no wife, no children? The world of the academy and the world of science could also become more flexible than it is even now. Absolutely, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Of course, Mariah was a one of a very large family, but mm. she was a single woman. Uh, she probably would have been of the same mindset as Margaret and Dorit and Eileen, that she wouldn't have been able to do the science if she had been hobbled to a family. Um, you know what I find a little funny about Mariah is we have quite a few photos of her, and she's always wearing these really uncomfortable-looking clothes, and she's always got her hair done in fancy corkscrew curls, and I would like to think that when she wasn't going to get photographed, she would have looked more dressed down and comfy. Mm. But just to think that her times forced that much discomfort and inconvenience on her. Uh, she did rail about needlework um, occupying much more of women's time and mind mm. than was good for them. Mm -hmm. But, but she, was, she was kind of swept up into it, too. Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, sort of imagining her, because my office used to be right across from her house, where I could mm -hmm. just imagine her, you know, leaving in the evening to go look at the stars or something. And um, I think about her a lot, what, who, who she was, what she cared about. Well, I can tell you, being out on that observatory roof on a winter night, very very cold. <laughs> <laughs> so the view would have to be really astonishing to make up for and it. And she had to have been wrapped up in a lot of layers. <laughs> sure, sure. 
Well, I would like to do this again because there's just, mm -hmm. I think we're just kind of getting, we're just starting scratching mm -hmm. the surface. Yeah, well, I would like, I would like to know more about um, what your ideas are for going forward. I well, mean, you're here. What are we going to do? What I'm realizing now is that I'm here to bring Mariah Mitchell, elevate her relevance to today. I'm on a mission. By the way, the other morning, I woke up rather early, and I caught the end of a BBC program, and Mariah popped up. Really? Yeah. Wow. They were talking about women scientists, and there was Mariah. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. And they pronounced her name right. 